We've been going through the holy history. The theme for this series is found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. It says, these things happened to them as examples for us and were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. All of these events that took place with Israel in the Old Testament are not just history, they're his story. It's God's interaction and intervention in human history. God's plan to bring the whole earth to himself, to bring all the people of the earth to be a part of his kingdom. Uh, we lit the love candle. I had to relight the love candle because it was going out. Hmm, it's kind of like our era where Jesus said most people's love will grow cold. <laughs> but fortunately, I have a lighter, so... <laughs> That's right. That's why you need Jesus inside, right? He's the lighter. Everybody else's love can grow cold. You can follow the Lord. Um, so uh, this is also the Sunday that we look at the testimony of the wise men, the testimony of the Magi. And I want to talk about those three individuals. Well, they're actually, as you saw with the little cartoon at the beginning, if you paid attention, we don't know how many there were. There were three gifts, gold. What were they? Gold, frankincense, frankincense and, myrrh. and myrrh, right? So the you know, the Magi just got associated with the three gifts. We really don't know how many there were. Um, but nonetheless, a group of Magi, large or small, uh, came in a retinue to visit the baby Jesus. Um, and I, I find this, this very, very fascinating because every other uh, group of witnesses that we've looked at come from Scripture, right? Uh, come from holy history. So the first week, we looked at the testimony of the prophets. We saw that there are many prophecies that point to Jesus. Um, and uh, in fact, we saw that uh, that, that uh, is something that uh, is not going to be coincidental. Jesus couldn't have just accidentally fulfilled all of those prophecies. The, the, the odds of that are phenomenal. They're ridiculous, overwhelming. So Jesus fulfills all of those prophecies. He's the point of holy history. He is the one that holy history is pointing to, and he fulfills that. And then the second week, uh, we looked at the testimony of the angels, and I chose to look at uh, birth stories in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord came and spoke that a particular person that the Lord was choosing uh, was going to be born. And I let you guys know that the angel of the Lord is actually the pre-incarnate Christ, a theophany, a pre-appearance of Jesus on earth. And so the primary angel, which just means messenger, it doesn't just mean a particular type of being that God created. The word angelos in Greek means messenger. The primary messenger for the Lord, for Yahweh, is Jesus, Yeshua. And he is the messenger. And then we see in John chapter 1 that he is also the message. So it is likely that I will begin preaching through the gospel of John on January 1st, or if I choose to take that Sunday uh, for something topical, it will certainly be the following January the 8th. But that uh, gospel begins with uh, the, the statement of Jesus and his eternal existence, pre-existence with God, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that word for word, logos, can mean message. So Jesus is the messenger, and Jesus is the message. So that's the testimony of the angels, which is the second week. 
And um, then we looked at the testimony of the shepherds last week, and I showed you through holy history the significance of shepherds uh, and how they represented leaders and leadership. And again, I pointed to Jesus, who in the New Testament tells us that he is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, right? So he is the leader. He is the one that all of those shepherds are bearing witness to, but he is going to be the one that is going to shepherd God's people, and that's you and I. But he was also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that would also help to explain why uh, the first revelation outside of the Holy Family was to a group of shepherds. This week, then, uh, we have the testimony of the wise men. And uh, so I want you to see that um, God can communicate even outside of the Scripture. Now, we want to stick to the Scripture so that we can know for sure that it is God who is speaking. Um, but God speaks uh, no matter what the medium is he chooses to use. The scripture says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. How did the wise men, the magi, find out about Jesus? They looked at the stars, right? Um, there is a, uh, an interesting passage that, uh, that is found in Numbers 24, verses 16 through 17, that indicates perhaps that there would be a star pointing to Messiah. Listen to what that passage says. The declaration of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now. I look at him, but not near. A star shall appear from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall smash the forehead of Moab and overcome the sons of, of Sheth. Um, so the Magi followed a star. We'll look at the star a little bit more in just a moment, but let's return to what the Magi were. Who were these individuals? Well, they were Gentile astrologers, likely from either Persia or Babylon, which would be modern-day Iraq and Iran, okay? Um, here's a, an interesting description of what the Magi may have been. Um, Magi were well-known in the ancient East as purveyors of magic, interpreters of dreams and visions, and astrologers and prophets. That's from the Erdman's Bible Dictionary. Uh, magi visiting kings was actually fairly common at this time. In fact, we have record of Magi visiting the emperor Nero, who was not a very good king, by the way. Um, when Judah was taken captive to Babylon in the 6th century, there was interaction between the Jewish people and the Babylonians. And we see a lot of this in the, in the book of Daniel, as a matter of fact. Um, if you look at Daniel 1.20 and 2.2, you can see a couple of those interactions. Well, this may well have been the reason for uh, the Magi's familiarity with uh, the, the Jewish Messiah. They had been familiarized by these Jewish people who were with them. Now let's look at the star. What, what were they? What were? What did they see when they saw this star? There's a lot of speculation that surrounds this. It's interesting reading, actually. But above all, let's just say the star could clearly have been a miraculous event that uh, the Lord prepared to lead them. But there are some. There's some really fascinating things. They said that is the Magi said in Matthew two two that they saw his star when it arose. First we need to recognize that what scientists call a star today is very, very specific, right? But a star just represented any number of astronomical bodies. 
And in fact, it could have been been a, uh, a planet or a set of planets. It could have also been a comet. And in fact, many would indicate that uh, they believe that this was likely a comet. Now, I did a bunch of research into this, and uh, I did a, a, a study on it and presented it on a Wednesday night, I think last year or year before last. But I'm going to summarize very, very quickly. Um, hopefully, you'll find this interesting. But apparently, um, there was a comet that appeared in the, the Middle East right around 5 B.C. Now, if you understand the dating of the calendar, you know that Jesus' birth is what splits the calendar into B.C., before Christ, and A.D., not after death, Anno Domini, year of our Lord. It was, that is, the calendar was calculated uh, by uh, a a monk in the the Middle Ages. Uh, I want to say his name is Dionysius Exiguus, something of that sort. Uh, But he miscalculated, right? And so, in all likelihood, Jesus was born earlier than that zero point. In fact, he had to have been born earlier than 4 BC because that's when King Herod or Herod the Great died. Now, let's go back to the comet. This comet appears in 5 BC. Prior to that, in 7 BC, there was an alignment of planets, the planet um, Saturn uh, aligned with Jupiter, and then Mars joined that alignment. Well, if you understand how our planets are named or why they're named, they're named after Greek gods, right? And what you, you see is that Saturn and Jupiter are father and son, as gods, and then Mercury was the warrior god. So it is likely, um, and again, this is speculation, but it is likely that the stargazers saw this alignment, and this alignment happened in a particular region of the sky that caused them to associate it with the Jewish people. And so that signaled to them that there was a the birth of a great and powerful king that was going to occur. And then they see this comet. The comet is, you know, you know, a star doesn't really point anywhere, but because a comet has a tail, it does have a tendency to point. So what they did is they came to Jerusalem, and as uh, you heard when Autumn read the scripture, they inquired of Herod. Now, Herod was the king because the Romans permitted him to be the king. He, Judea was still part of the Roman Empire, and uh, he had been good buddies with Mark Antony, and he was uh, friends with uh, Caesar Augustus. And so they gave him a tremendous amount of territory, and they allowed him to have the title king. However, he was not from David's line of kings. He was not an authentic king from the scriptural viewpoint. In fact, he was an Idumean. He was not Jewish. So um, as far as, you know, his power was concerned, he did a lot of building. He did a lot of great things as far as a politician. But when he discovered that there was a legitimate messianic king that was being born, he became alarmed. In fact, it says all of Jerusalem became alarmed with him. And then he was sly, right? He sent the Magi. He said, go search out where this king is. Now, before he did that, he did some research with uh, the, the scribes, those that read the scripture, and found that this king, this messianic king, this king that comes from the, the line of David, would be born in the city of David, or it's David's birth city, which is Bethlehem. So they went, that is the Magi, went to Bethlehem. And it says 
that as they were on their way to Bethlehem, which is about five or six miles from Jerusalem, that they once again saw the star in the sky, which is another good reason to understand it as a comet. So what happens, um, you see a comet and then you lose it in the sun. And then once it comes back around, this is called perihelion. Once it comes back around, it would be facing another direction, the opposite direction, essentially. So the tail of the comet, once again, would be pointing. So it's, I just think it's a really, really uh, interesting speculation that this 5 BC comet may well have been the very uh, body in the sky that pointed to where Jesus was going to be born. Um, nonetheless, uh, that's what brought the uh, these uh, individuals to Jesus. And of course, they brought him gifts, right? As we mentioned earlier, gold, frankincense, which is a type of incense, valuable, and myrrh, which is actually a burial spice. So there are those who have associated these things with the various offices of Messiah. There are those that see the presentation of myrrh as a, a, a presaging, a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. Um, nonetheless, these were poor people. Uh, Jesus' family did not have a lot of money. So these gifts would have provided for them for some period of time because as you heard toward the end of the reading that Autumn gave from uh, Matthew chapter 2, they had to flee to Egypt to get away from Herod because we didn't read this part, but you know, you're probably well aware that Herod, to make sure that he was not going to be removed from power, had all of the babies under the age of two killed. Oh, why under the age of two? Let's back up again. If they saw this planetary alignment in 7 BC, and then they saw the comet leading them at that point in time in 5 BC, then they were alerted to the fact that this Messiah would be born two years prior to their entrance in Jerusalem. Now, some of the study that I read indicated that it would take, by camel, um, it would take a, a group of individuals uh, who would be traveling from the, the area of Babylon and Persia, right around that area. It would take them uh, 18 days to, to go 900 miles. So the likelihood is that the Magi showed up somewhere in the vicinity of six or so weeks after the birth of Jesus. Now, there's an interesting difference between Matthew's account and Luke's account. Luke's account, we focus on the manger, right? And the actual, that, that point in time when Jesus was born and the shepherds who received the announcement from the angels and then they go and visit. And we, you know, as you saw in the cartoon earlier, we have this beautiful manger scene uh, like I have back here, okay? And here are, my, here are my three kings. Here's one king, here's another king, here's another king, okay? The three wise men. But they, they weren't there at that point in time because Matthew, who tells us about the Magi, says that when they visited Jesus, he was where? He was in a house, right? Now, here's another interesting thing. The manger. What was the manger? Well, it's just a wooden feeding trough. But there's a really good likelihood when you look at the language that uh, Luke uses, the, the inn that is spoken of is not um, a public inn. It was in all likelihood uh, an external room to a house. So since um, Joseph was called back to his place of 
uh, where his lineage was, because Joseph was a descendant of David, and some scholars believe Mary was as well. There's a difference between the accounts of uh, Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, which uh, scholars will tell you is the official account that traces through Joseph, even though Jesus was not the biological child of Joseph. Joseph was, I like to say, his stepdad or his adopted dad. Almighty God was his father. But th- there is a different genealogy that is presented in Luke, and that genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. And there are some who think that that may relate to Mary. Nonetheless, they were called back by the census uh, to Bethlehem so that they could be properly counted. When they arrived, it says there was no room for them at the inn, right? Or there was no room for them. Uh, I believe the the Greek term is kataluma. And uh, again, it can refer to this external, uh, a guest room, if you will, okay? So it is likely that um, Joseph and perhaps Mary had relatives in Bethlehem, but because of the census, The house that they would have stayed at was too full. So where were they placed? They were placed in the external room where the animals were kept. Now, you know, those of you ladies that have uh, given birth, uh, you, you can imagine how dirty that would be and how difficult that would be. But how much more difficult would it be if Mary had had to give birth in this very, very public home? right? Uh, Their homes were not set up the way our homes are, where we have all these different rooms. There would be one large common room. There might be areas divided off, but it wouldn't have been very private for Mary. So it is likely that, well, it is definite that it was providential, but it is likely that it provided a whole lot more privacy for Mary to give birth to Jesus. So in all likelihood, Mary gives birth Uh, in the exterior part of the house where the animals were kept, lays Jesus in that manger, and it is to that place that the shepherds uh, arrive to give homage to Jesus and to rejoice. Probably six weeks or so later, they're now living in the house. They're staying in Bethlehem. They haven't received any further uh, information from Almighty uh, God as to where they're supposed to go or what they're supposed to do. So now all the extra guests are gone. Jesus has been born. So they just move upstairs into a normal room in the house. That's where the Magi came and visited them and presented them with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So once again, uh, that would have been... At at the minimum, because of how long it would have taken them to travel, it would have been six weeks after Jesus' birth. But it could have been longer. It could have been upwards of two years. And the reason why we say that is because Herod had all the babies under two years killed. He wanted to make sure that he got that individual that was threatening his throne, okay? So it's a very interesting story. There's some facts. I don't know if you're interested in those facts or not. But I have a number of applications that I would like to present to you as the result of what the Lord did in bringing the Magi to visit Jesus. Number one, or letter A, we would say, God is impartial. Amen? The old King James has it, God is no respecter of persons. Yes, he chose the Jewish people. Going back to Abraham because of the faith of Abraham. But God is impartial. We understand from John's gospel as well that God so loved what? The world. Not the world system, but the people of the world. That's you and I. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't say, for God so loved the elect. And that's it. 
For God so loved the Jewish people, and that's it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God is impartial, and he will reveal himself to anyone who seeks him honestly. Letter B, God is always speaking and seeking to reveal himself and his will. God wants you to know him. God wants you to know his will. He's not trying to hide from you. He's trying to speak every day he's trying to speak. In what ways? Well, obviously, from this testimony uh, related to the Magi, God speaks in nature. Um, it's called, sometimes we refer, we refer to this as natural revelation. Nature is God's first Bible. It's difficult to go out and observe the beauty of, let's say, uh, the Rocky Mountains or where I was born, the Grand Canyon, and not be overwhelmed with the reality that, man, there's a creator. Or you just look at your body and how unbelievably intricate and complex it is and how well it works. Now, yes, we get sick and, and we have problems, but we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a world that was designed by God, but has been separated from God by sin. But nonetheless, the evidence for God is all over nature. God can choose to speak in nature. God speaks also within us. Perhaps we would say he speaks to the conscience, right? He speaks to your heart or to your mind. Now, we have to be careful with this, right? And this is why, once again, we need the Bible because we can have weird thoughts and think, well, is that God? And not really, really know. But God does seek to speak to people directly through their conscience, right? Through their, through their heart or mind. And where do I get that? This is Romans 1, 19 and 20. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. The them are us. It is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, so here we have the creation now, his, invis his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived being understood by what has been made. So they're without excuse. No human being has an excuse to be an atheist or to reject God. I didn't say they don't have reasons. But many times people's reasons don't have much to do with reason at all. It has more to do with our attitude, our approach to God and so forth. But I don't want to get into a debate about uh, atheism. God may also, we're talking about God speaking within, God may also use dreams, and that's what he did with Joseph. Uh, when we read Matthew's account, every time the Lord spoke to Joseph, he spoke to Mary directly, right? The angel Gabriel appeared to her. But every time God speaks to uh, Joseph, he speaks to him in a dream, through an angel in a dream. Guess what? God also spoke to who in a dream? The Magi. That's how they knew to go back another way. God can talk however he wants to talk, right? We don't need to be limiting God, amen? I just get fired up about all this because I just, I, I love knowing this kind of a, a, of a God, right? How amazing he is. And then, of course, uh, God speaks in his word, in the Bible, um, this is what corrects us and helps us to understand that we're not mishearing God. That we would call special revelation. And this entire year, virtually through most of the year, we, we've been walking through holy history. And rather than just saying, here's what this verse says, I've been trying to show you the meaning of the overall story of holy history. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the message, um, it all points to Jesus. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But here's a good uh 
piece of scripture, a good passage of scripture that helps us to understand special revelation, that helps us to understand scripture. It says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, you know, I was talking to a young man. Uh, we had a memorial service here yesterday. This, uh, I don't know that there's anybody in the room that would know uh, this woman that passed away, but uh, a friend of mine from ministry in, in the past asked me to officiate the service. And so there were many people here. There were more people here for the memorial than there are here this morning for, for church. But there was a young man that asked me after the service, you know, about the books of the Bible that were left out. And you hear these sorts of things all the time. And uh, he didn't know which books those were, but uh, I talked to him about uh, the Gnostic documents, about the pseudepigrapha, about these documents that came one, two, three hundred years later, and then the names of the apostles or the name of Jesus was attached to them to try to give them authenticity. But Gnostic philosophy and the Gnostic view of life is dramatically different than scripture, right? It's just not even close. But I always invite people, anybody that's ever read the Bible, just look online, type in Gnostic Gospels, Gnostic documents, and read that. I'm not scared for you to read it. It's weird. It's nonsense. It's not inspired. Like, it's really, really strange. You know, it's interesting to me that when Dan Brown came out with the Da Vinci Code in the early 2000s, you remember that book? You know, where he wrote on the back, everything that, you know, I've written here is truthful and it's all factual and it's all baloney. It really, really wasn't. It was a giant pile of bantapudu is what it was. If you know Star Wars, you understand that I just cursed in Star Wars, all right? But nonetheless, all you have to do is actually read those documents and you think, whoa, not even, uh-uh, Okay. They cause confusion and consternation, not faith. But when you read the scripture, and I always encourage people, go to the Psalms or go to the New Testament. Start there, okay? In fact, I'm gonna preach through John. That's my plan at this point in time. I encourage people to start reading in the Gospel of John. You want to have faith, you need to hear the word of God. The scripture says uh, in Romans 10, 17, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. When you hear the word of the words of the gospel preached, it wells up inside of you and presents you with an opportunity to believe, right? And four, above all, God speaks through his son. So um, interestingly, Jesus is called the word of God and the Bible is called the word of God, but Jesus is the final revelation of God to human beings, right? He is the one through whom God is going to introduce himself to you, and he is the one that will help you to understand the scripture. When you interpret the Bible, you interpret it from the viewpoint of Jesus, who again is the final revelation. Uh, here is, uh, we're back to the book of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, and it says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
If you want to know God, friends, you got to come to Jesus. So um, what happens when people don't know Jesus yet? They haven't, they haven't heard the gospel. They haven't had that privilege. They don't have a Bible, right? Um, in Romans, the Apostle Paul says something rather surprising if you pay attention to Romans chapter 6, and that is this. This is letter C of our application. All of those who seek to do good will glorify God, whose nature defines good, and will be rewarded by God. You see, even if you don't know Jesus, do you want to do what's right? Do you want to do good? See, good is good because it flows from the nature of God. So even before you know God, you are introduced to the nature of God because you have something inside of you, call it your conscience, right? That convicts you of right and wrong and helps you want to move toward the good and away from the evil. All right, I said that Paul taught this in Romans. Here are some verses for you. This is Romans 2, 6 through 7. It says, who will repay, that is God, will repay each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. So if somebody really did seek God, or they just sought to do good and to be honorable, God says, I'll reward them with eternal life. And then it, a little further down, uh, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And here's that phrase that I quoted earlier, for there is no partiality with God. If people would really seek, as they say, to do good and to do right, not as George Clooney in our skit did, <laughs> seek, I want to do it my way. All right, I knew when I read that. I, I so wanted Roy to do that. I'm so glad that he did. It's so wonderful. But George just represents kind of how we interpret good. Good is what's good for me. Good is what, you know, is what makes me feel good. Good is what I want. No, that's not the kind of good that is going to be rewarded by God, right? It is the good that is objectively good, that is defined by God, all right? And then letter D of our application, those who seek God will find him through Jesus. And that's the title and the point of my message today. Um, what did Jesus say himself when he spoke to his disciples? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And then the apostle Peter writes in Acts 4.12, for there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Jesus. Well, friends, what's the problem? The problem is people aren't really seeking to do good. The problem is people aren't really seeking God. They are, like George Clooney, self-seeking. We define and seek our own good. Listen to what Romans 2, 8 and 9 says. This is in that same passage that I just have been quoting out of. Um, but to those who are self-serving and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will give wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of mankind who does evil for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You see, we ignore God who is speaking and seeking to be found because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And sin, I mean, it can define, be defined in a lot of ways, but in a, one way, it's self-seeking, self-serving, selfishness, self-centeredness, right? Um, listen to what uh, the scripture says. This is Romans 3, 9 through 18. And this is why you don't find people who are just 
uh, inheriting eternal life as the result of being wonderful, uh, good seekers. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? He's talking about the Jewish people. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. How many people are righteous? None. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless or useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. And by the way, these are all quotations from the Old Testament. These are all quotations from the Psalms. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And it concludes, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why Jesus came and this is why his gospel must be preached. And once again, I am preaching the gospel to you today by way of the wise men. But that gospel, that good news about Jesus coming and dying for your sins provides an opportunity for you to express faith. You don't have to have a lot of faith. You don't have to have mighty faith. You just have to have a little bit of faith. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is a very small seed. I have a little jar of them upstairs that somebody gave me one time. And they're very small and they're very light too. I've accidentally dropped them and they will just blow all over the place. You know, they're hard to track down if you spill a lot of them, right? And Jesus said, if you had faith that size, that's not much weight, that's not much size. He said, you could move a mountain. You could say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and it would obey you. Why? Because your faith needs to be in an object that is capable of doing the work. And that's almighty God. You don't, your faith doesn't move the mountain. It's God who moves the mountain. You put your faith in God. Amen. That's what we do. Um, so uh, that scripture uh, that I began to quote from Romans chapter three, I'm going to go back up to Romans 323 and I'm going to read down to 325 because the gospel is presented here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. That means all. Raise your hand if you're an all, right? That means we've all sinned and we are all justified by his grace that is freely given through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented excuse me, presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You receive this by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, that means his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace. What you have to do is exercise your faith. Once again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, right? Jesus is the center of it all. I hope you've understood that through this time of preaching through Advent. The focus has always been Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the agent of creation. He is the one through whom everything came into existence. He is the, the, the son of God who came to earth, became a man, and showed us the way, the way that we don't live, the way that we won't live, and then died on the cross to pay the penalty of all the sin that we do commit. And then rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and now if you will call on his name, 
He will send his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live in you and help you walk through this life, to help you become increasingly more prepared to be in heaven with him, to help him become a little Christ. And that's what Christian means, right? We call that process sanctification, right? Christ justifies us. He makes us right even before we're producing any right, right? Uh, Some theologians have said you can take the word apart and it helps you understand justified. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. That's what Jesus did for you and I on the cross. But he doesn't leave you in your weakened state. He doesn't leave you walking in failure and trying to make it up as you go along. No, Jesus sends his spirit to sanctify you, first to give you new birth, and then to give you the ability to do righteousness, to produce righteousness, to produce fruit, right? So today, you've heard the gospel message. Hopefully that has confirmed and affirmed what you have already received and what you've already believed. And if not, then I hope it is giving you the opportunity right now as you sense that conviction in your soul to reach out to Jesus, to call on his name and to be saved. The scripture says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That means he and, he and God are one, right? He's Lord, he's master, he's king that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is speaking. God is seeking to be known by you. He wants to reveal his will to you. But if you seek God, if you seek good, you're going to find Jesus. Amen? We're going to have a little bit more worship here. And I hope that you will try to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and be responsive. Um, If you need someone to pray with, Pastor Craig and I will be down here. We would like to pray with you and for you. Um, All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just call out to him in prayer. Use your own words. Just say, Jesus, come in my life. Jesus, I believe in you, save me. Call out to him. And if you do pray or renew your faith, if you're online, then I would ask you to go to our website, lifefulchurch.com, and you'll see a feedback tab there. You just click that feedback tab and fill that out and tell me, because that'll come to me and me only, tell me that you prayed to receive Christ today, that you've chosen to commit your life or recommit your life to Jesus. And those of you here in in this room, you can use your mobile device to do the same thing or pick up one of these bulletins that I print every week and you ignore. Um, (laughs) Pick up one of these bulletins and fill it out and let me know what your feedback is, but let me know that you prayed to receive Christ, all right?